0: Greetings to everyone. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Kenneth Russell Valpe. He is scholar of Vaishnava theology, preacher, translator of Vedic text and Sanskrit, and author of more than 20 books. He is not just academic, but he is a practitioner of Vedic Bhakti school, since 1972. Um, in 2014, he accepted uh, s- sannyasa, the renounced order of life, as a monk by a name, uh, His Holiness Krishna Swami. As a spiritual master, he traveled tra- throughout the world and inspired and teach and help a lot of people. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes. Today we will talk about uh, your books because mm-hmm. there are many of them, more than 20. And um, I will start, I will open this conversation um, with um, on which book you are working
1: now. Uh, now I'm working on a book called Yoga and Animal Ethics. It's going to be, uh, yeah, what we would call an academic book. Um, it's concerned with the ethical understanding, uh, the concern with how we, we human beings, should Um, relate with animals and I want to bring the yoga tradition or traditions of India uh, into the you can say the conversation the debates that go on on the subject of animal ethics I got one question on
0: this topic um from your disciple, why you go so much into this of uh, animal protection, and uh, there is
1: also a book, cow protection,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a book which I wrote. Yes, yes, uh, that book is is you can say the precursor to the book I'm writing now. Uh, it's called Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. Uh, Both books are uh, part of a book series on the subject of animal ethics. And why I'm writing about this subject, about animals, what do we care about animals, I would say um, much of our trouble in uh, contemporary society is related directly or indirectly with our treatment or I would like to say mistreatment of animals and um, I think our modern civilization has a a major blind spot uh, in thinking how or not thinking uh, how we relate with animals Um, it was It's said to have been said um, by the Russian, 19th century Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy that as long as there are slaughterhouses so long there will be uh, slaughter on the battlefields uh, of humans fighting and killing other human beings. So if that If there's any truth to that, then we might ask ourselves, how can we, um, could we, first of all, could we live without slaughtering animals? Could we be happy without slaughtering animals? Uh, Could we have a diet which is free from uh, the flesh of animals? And of course, many people have written on this subject. Um, There's now many books and mm, there's a lot of increasing acceptance of vegetarianism, of uh, now more and more veganism. Uh, So it's gone, in some sense, the subject has gone somewhat mainstream So I want to add to that discussion uh, from, let's say, from uh, Eastern perspectives, from ancient India and um, the later Indian philosophical, theological traditions.
0: Mm. Amazing. When we setting all this uh, for recording this conversation, you said that you... um, Uh, work on Paravidya Mala's second part we have here the first part it looks like that and if you can uh, uh, tell us more about uh,
1: what is this particular book yes well Paravidya means higher knowledge a Paravidya would mean lower knowledge So in the Vedic or ancient Indian tradition, it's understood there's kind of two grades of knowledge. Um, Aparavidya would be any kind of knowledge that is about temporary things, temporary life, um, knowledge which is of um, temporal value. And Paravidya is the opposite of that. It's something about enduring knowledge, so we we may want to say it's about wisdom, spiritual wisdom. And the word mala uh, means a series. So this is volume one, and we're about to publish volume two, so then we have at least two a two-part series. Uh, and these are uh, uh, collections, really, of assorted... Uh, things that I've either written or spoken. Uh, Some of it, probably a lot of it, is going to be just transcriptions of things which I have um, given as lectures and seminars. Um, But in the first part of this Paravidya Mala, as I remember, uh, is something that I wrote, and it's a summary of the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is a a very important, we would say, scripture of uh, ancient India. Some would say it's the Indian Bible. Uh, It's the instruction or advice uh, of Lord Krishna to his friend uh, Arjuna, And it consists of 700 uh, Sanskrit verses or uh, shlokas, they're called, stanzas. And uh, it's 18 chapters. So what I've done in this summary is to take each of the 18 chapters and made a brief summary focusing on the idea of yoga, which is in each of the chapters. So it's called the 18 yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, What else is in this volume? I would need to look myself. One is a discussion about Arjuna. There's uh, an interesting book, which inspired me to give a short seminar on the character of Arjuna uh, in the Bhagavad Gita. And, yeah, other assorted uh, seminars and discussions that I've given. Also, there's including a section on uh, the different forms of Krishna or uh, what we like to call the supreme personality of Godhead. Um, Krishna or God, we understand, expands being all-powerful Uh, He can expand himself into multiple forms and each of these forms have specific functions or purposes and they are responding to or they are um, uh, reciprocating with specific desires of the Lord's devotees. So uh, there's quite a detailed analysis of that in this book. So amazing. And where can uh, someone order? Where can someone order these books? Yes. That's a good question. I'm not much of a promoter of my books, but I believe one place they can be ordered is from Bhakti Vedanta Library Services, um, which is uh, based in Belgium, and they have a website blservices.com as I remember
0: and they can write a comment and we will arrange that they will get the books yes great okay let's see what we have next here Um, this is the newest uh, yes
1: actually this is uh, hot off the press we say in English Uh, the paper is still warm (laughs) yeah, I can feel
0: it (laughs) Krishna's Wonderful Forum A Guide for the Perplexed yes Uh, I read this book
1: and it is a conversation between you and two students three students students. two students students and one former student yes so can you um, tell us more about this book? Okay, the title again is Krishna's Wonderful Form A Guide for the Perplexed and the idea is to um, explain in the clearest and simplest possible, possible ways what it is in the practice of uh, what we call bhakti yoga what is this uh, practice of serving forms of God in temples. What is this all about? Uh, And how is it that we would be mistaken to think of this as what is called idolatry in the Abrahamic religious traditions, because there's very strong... very strong statements against um, the worship of what are called idols or physical images. We find in the uh, liter- the sacred literature of Judaism and um, and Christianity and Islam. So why is it that to worship Krishna in the temple is not that? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to explain in the first part of this book. And then in the second part, I'm explaining how there are different forms of uh, this murti, as he's called, the physical form, different forms uh, to be found in the temple. And in then in the last part, I explained briefly just what it is that uh, is going on. If you would go into a Krishna temple, you would see these forms on altars, um, nicely decorated with lots of flowers, probably, uh, and so on. And you would see what we might call priests, and they would be doing certain things and you might be wondering, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm explaining what's happening there and showing that it's not all so mysterious and it's something which, um, which is quite reasonable and which can be an aid uh, to our practice of spiritual cultivation cultivating our spiritual higher awakened self. Mm. Uh, You were also uh, a pujari. Pujari, that's the word I was uh, going around to say, priest, yes. Uh Uh-huh, okay. (laughs) Pujari is is one who engages in this kind of practice of um, what is also called uh, seva, sometimes puja sometimes called seva sometimes called archana different terms are there yeah
0: there are so many books more than 20 do you use any uh, specific strategy
1: how to (laughs) write a strategy of writing yes well as i mentioned some of these uh, especially like paravidya mala um, and a couple of others you have here. These are transcriptions of seminars. So it's not what I would call serious writing <laughs> because uh, they're, it's from speaking in an extempore sort of a way, um, um, which, you know, you edit them to make it more readable. Um, but as for strategies for writing, there's an idea, let's see how we can develop it, how we can expand it. Um, what is the argument that I want to make? Uh, the, the basic format of any such writing, uh, not fictional writing, it's more non-fictional and it's um, expository, I guess we would say, Um, is the basic format is some people say X, Y, or Z, but I say A, B, and C. (laughs) But it can also be in variations of that. Some people say X, Y, and Z, and those are really good points, and I want to elaborate especially on X to be able to understand it more deeply or something like that, because many people misunderstand X, so this is how we can better understand it. Yeah, that's uh, on the side of the, 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 the reasoning and argument side. And the rest of it is about um, taking the time, and sitting down and doing the work and kind of putting other things to the side Mm -hmm. and it means sometimes doing such radical things like turning off one's telephone (laughs) one's mobile phone um, and yeah Um, making a making a schedule making plans how am i going to give time for this work, and it's about uh, a certain amount of determination, and a certain amount of persistence, and um, a certain amount of patience, I suppose, and and a certain amount of enthusiasm, this will be a good thing, this will help others. yeah so no big uh no big secrets i would say
0: as a a writer uh, this is really interesting to me and um, the man who you don't see but it is here encouraged me also to share um, how i write a, a book how you write yes yes please um because i don't write i record books Uh Aha, you speak them. I speak them. Yes, because if I uh, write 10 sentences, then I will 8 sentences delete. That's my nature. But if I record and just leave it, then there is. So this is somehow a simple way for me to write. Yes, Uh, whatever works. (laughs) Yes, so let's go on with a new book. Um, this is also uh fresh, not old
1: yeah
0: yama niyama what can i can you tell us uh, more about this book? You can read the subtitle of it's important <coughs> for the book yes, essential steps in classical yoga applied to culture
1: of bhakti yes, so um, What is often called classical yoga is uh, sometimes equated with uh, ashtanga yoga. Ashta means eight, anga means limbs, the eight limbs of yoga, um, which is mentioned in uh, the yoga sutras of Patanjali. which is dated anywhere from 2nd century of the Common Era to, I don't know, 4th century. There's debates. It's, it's a fairly ancient work and it's become uh, established as a rather standard work of classical yoga, whether or not anyone can understand it or follow it. But within... Ashta Anga, the eight Angas, uh, what most people are familiar with is the third of the eight Angas, namely Asana, and most of the yoga studios are um, teaching Asana. Um, I won't go into that, but what they're neglecting is all the other Angas, (laughs) Uh, And in particular, they're neglecting the first two. And the first of these is called yama, uh, which means, or it can also be with a long A, yama. Uh, The yamas are restraints, and there are specified by Patanjali in this system, five practices of restraint. And these are sometimes called ethical practices, Principles, because they have to do with how we relate with other persons. And the first of the five yamas is ahimsa. And ahimsa means, usually it's translated as non-injury or non-violence. And so it's understood. You want to be successful in the practice of yoga, step one. Practice non-violence, practice non-injury. Cultivate a way of life in which uh, your actions, your physical actions, your words, and your mind are restrained from the tendency uh, to injure other beings. And then there's, there's more restraints. There's satyam, truthfulness, we have a tendency to, to lie, to not tell truth. Asteya, uh, to not steal, because we all have tendencies to take what doesn't belong to us. Brahmacharya, which means, uh, it can be translated as celibacy, but we could also say bro- bro- more broadly, respecting sexual boundaries. <laughs> mm. And even more broadly, it can mean uh, uh, engaging with or living in uh, spirit, Brahman. And then there's Aparigraha, uh, the final of the five. I won't give a whole seminar on this. Uh, (laughs) Which is uh, um, non-possessiveness, which kind of is complementary to non-stealing. But all of these together is step one in the practice of yoga. And then Niyama, in a sense, expands on those, um, but it's more positive practices. Also, there are five of them, uh, according to uh, the Yoga Sutras. So all I'm doing in this book is saying, here's some nice principles which are uh, if you look carefully in the bhakti devotional devotional yoga literature you 'll find all of these principles um, so let's let 's uh, give a little extra attention to them and since they 're considered preliminary in the classical yoga system, maybe it 's helpful if we also see them as preliminary to the bhakti yoga system mm. That's what we're doing in that seminar this was a a seminar over some days i think
0: <laughs> and how you make it um to write so apl- apl- uh, um, that um it's so practical applicable applicable I could, uh, yes please
1: uh, well, again, it, it, I didn't write, I spoke. And it's like you said, you speak your books. <laughs> so in this case, I did the same. <laughs> okay. Uh, how to make it practical. Well, that's one nice thing about uh, giving a seminar is you're with real people speaking and they are asking you such questions like that. Okay, you talked a bunch of theory. Um, tell, us, tell us something practical. So you feel impelled, okay, I have to make this practical. Um, Through examples, through one's own experience, uh, through experience of others, um, through encouraging, experimenting in one's own life. And just, I would say, by becoming aware, conscious, uh Explicitly conscious, okay, there are these these principles. Let me keep them somewhere in the fore in the f- um, on the front stage in in the in the foreground of my consciousness, so I can um, yeah, as we say keep them in mind as I'm going about my life, as they say now. Nowadays you hear or see people writing about yoga and they're recognizing, well, there's the practice of asanas, but there's what I've read a few called yoga off the mat. So the mat means the, the, you know, the, the, the mat, the cushion on which you practice asanas, sitting, standing, lying down, stretching, Okay, that's yoga asana, but what about the rest of my life? Oh, that's yoga off the mat. Uh, so we might want to say also this is yoga off the mat. Now
0: I know why uh, this book was uh, so mind-blowing for me. Ah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so thank you very much for this gift. Uh, we have next book. <laughs> <We must be. laughs> next book <laughs> there uh, is it. a, lo- a, a yes. lot of books <laughs> um, there was also one interesting question by um, one devotee how you manage because in one side you are renounced like monk life and on the other side you are very involved in this and. Sanct- Scientific field. How you balance this? Because uh, a lot of um, devotees asking about balance.
1: Ah, uh, balance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, well, okay. If we take the idea of balance, I like to give the example of riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, most people know how to ride a bicycle, but when you first were learning how to ride a bicycle as a small child, it was quite a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And it was almost unimaginable. How am I going to sit on this small seat, and there's two wheels, but they're very narrow wheels, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they're like this? Um, Maybe we had, uh, when we are very small, a bicycle with... Uh, trainer wheels Mm -hmm. right two additional little wheels on the back Mm -hmm. Uh, so you could very easily ride because it actually had four wheels but then at some point dad took off the trainer wheels and said okay today we're gonna learn how to ride bicycle with two wheels and okay and then he took you and sort of ran alongside of you right pushing And then at one point, I think this is universal, at one point he gives you a strong push and you're like this and you realize you're doing it, you're on your own and pretty soon after that, you fall over. (laughs) Right? Yes. But after a while, you try a few times and after a while, you find you can do it uh, without even thinking about it. But... Imagine now, instead of riding a bicycle, you're sitting on the bicycle completely still Mm. and you're supposed to balance. Is that going to be very easy? Maybe some people can do it, but most of us would find that very difficult. Um, So what makes it easy is that we are moving we're moving, plus we have, our body has learned how to adjust the weight. We're actually making a lot of unconscious uh, shifts in our body as as we're going, but it's quite easy because we're moving. So I think uh, any, I think spiritual balance is vaguely like that. We need to We need to get going, we need to say, okay, I'll just do it. And then over time, with some practice, yes, there's these various duties I have in my life, uh, which we may want to call material duties, but I also have my spiritual duties. And let me just see if there's some way I can balance them by doing them. And if there's a determination, again, I want to... This is important, and this is also important. Okay, then, with a little help... From, we, that was a Beatles song, I think. I get by with a little help from my friends. And in- Okay, that's before your time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was a song. <laughs> I think it was Beatles. Uh, I get by... You know, I manage life. I get by with a little help from my friends. So, like that, I, I manage with a little help from my friends, and especially my my inner friend. We understand from uh, from Bhagavad Gita and from our Bhakti literature that we all have one very good friend in our. Uh, with us in ourselves in our we say in the heart uh, and um, that is the lord uh, technically called Paramatma, the the higher self the supreme self and as we are conscious he is conscious he's helping out yeah so it's a matter of practice um, as far as how do I balance academic life and devotional life, first of all i'm I'm not um, I'm not a teacher in in a university. I have done some university teaching um, but not now. so I have uh, I don't have that kind of pressure um, the the academic world for, you know, for the teacher, professor is, uh, it can be quite intense pressures um, to, you know, perform. I don't have any of that. I'm sort of, uh, you could say, retired. So my academic work is uh, essentially writing and um you could say it's essentially volunteer work. Um, and as such, I can do very much what I want to do. I can focus on the subjects that I'm interested in, especially. Um, again, which is different in some respects from, say, a, un- a junior professor in the university may have to teach courses uh, on subjects they're not so into uh, but i don't i don't have that problem <laughs> yeah thank
0: you for sharing now we have book with headline bhagavata smaranam is it right pronounced
1: yes S- bhagavata smaranam
0: Sm- smaranam devotee's reflection on the shrimad bhagavatam canto
1: 1 Canto one, canto one. Yes, yes. That's canto means uh, that's a Latin word, I guess. The first uh, part of a book, uh, a Sanskrit book, the Bhagavatam or Shrimad Bhagavatam or Shrimad Bhagavata Purana, mm. uh, and the word smarana means remembering, um, and this is. Uh, a book which I've simply edited, which means I've uh, invited others to write. And this is something I like to do is to encourage others to write. And specifically, I like to encourage them to write based on inspiration that they have uh, gathered from their reading of devotional literature. In this case, uh, the this book, the Bhagavatam, which is a very, very important book for our specific tradition, uh, the Vaishnava tradition of bhakti. So this is a collection of such inspirations by uh, those who we managed to um, get to do the writing. It's not always easy to get people to write because uh, they think, often they think, I cannot write. Uh, that's um, that's uh, a kind of challenge for people to overcome, thinking, I cannot write. They can read. If you can read, you can write. <laughs> yeah.
0: You mentioned Bhagavata Purana mm-hmm. and uh, His Holiness Krishna Kshita Swami recorded a, a documentary about Bhagavata Purana. We will share the link below. It is on YouTube. What, what um, influences you or motivate you for this documentary?
1: We were several years ago. This was um... 2016, myself and my colleague, uh, Ravi Gupta, Professor Ravi Gupta, also known amongst devotees as uh, His Grace raman Prabhu, uh, we're organizing a conference, an academic conference on the Bhagavata Purana in South India in the city of Chennai. And I just thought, well, we're, having, we're going to have several um, very respected scholars uh, attending and giving presentations on the Bhagavatam, so why don't we take advantage of their all coming into one place and uh, interview them. Mm. And so that led to the creation of this film. <laughs> yeah. so. We sort of took up, uh, as, a, as a general concept, how to do it. Um, there are many documentaries produced, for example, by BBC, uh, where there's one sort of host who is on some sort of quest. He wants to, or she wants to find out something in particular. And so they travel here, they go there, they speak to this person, that person. Uh, It's all very intriguing and exciting. So we thought maybe we can do the same uh, with the Bhagavatam, but we need to have some key question to ask Uh, what we're searching for, what is it we want to find out? So we decided what we want to find out is why is it that this Bhagavatam, which is centuries old, if not millennia, the tradition says it's 5,000 years old, but whatever its age, why is it that it's now, today, in the 21st century, still popular? How many people write a book that is still popular after three years (laughs) or five years or 20 years, you know. Uh, And here's a book which is popular after hundreds of years and maybe thousands of years, why? So we made that our our quest question. (laughs) Wow, so
0: powerful. You will get the link uh, below so all. Invited to watch. Okay, let's. uh, More books?
1: Yes, we have more. (laughs) It's a very persistent interviewer. Okay. (laughs) Next
0: is Krishna Seva, the theology of deity worship in Chaitanya Vaishnavism. This look like that.
1: Yes. So you want to know what is this book? Yes. Uh, this was my master's thesis. Um, I, um, I I studied at uh, I did my master's degree at a particular institution in um, Northern California near San Francisco, called the uh, Graduate Theological. Union, uh, which is a consortium of uh, several religious seminaries, mainly Christian uh, seminaries, but with a program, a course program in the academic study of religion, the, the uh, you could say, secular study of religion. So I took that that course. And... Um, yeah, it was required uh, that we write a thesis. So my thesis was this book. Um, and uh, my, my purpose, my intention, I thought, not just to you know get this degree and then forget about it, but to make it so that it would be interesting, that it would be a book uh, which explains... Uh, the reasoning, uh, the reasoning of uh, the, the practice of, well, in a sense, going back to this first book you showed, uh, Krishna's wonderful form, mm-hmm. but in perhaps a, a bit more academic way uh, to explain the reasoning of this practice. Or you can say, taking this um, practice of worshiping, uh, the murti, the form of Krishna in the temple, and making that the the lens through which to explain all the um, the whole theology, the whole logic of uh, bhakti yoga of devotion to Krishna. Uh, one could instead take another another lens. One could take the practice of chanting chanting or reciting uh, the names of Krishna which is very important also in the tradition. Uh, One could take it from the lens of visiting the sacred places, like that there's many different ways, but I thought let's take this as the lens, this practice of Krishna Seva and explain uh, the theology through it. So it's a small book, um, and uh, we have a a Spanish translation of it, and uh, we had a German translation. I think it went out of print, and um, Croatian, we had a Croatian also, or have, maybe we still have, yeah.
0: So you can get it in more languages. Yes, you mentioned Bhakti Yoga, and um, if I can go a little back about, about uh, this um, documentary and this book, famous book, which is here decades, even not even more, like you say. Wh- why you think so that is so powerful?
1: Why is Bhakti Yoga so powerful? Oh, the book, Bhagavad Gita. Oh, the Bhagavad Gita. Why is it so powerful? It's Krishna himself <laughs> he's speaking. This is the understanding of our tradition that um, uh, if if we allow ourselves to take uh, the uh, the words of Krishna as having been literally spoken by. Krishna as having been literally present in the world uh, and having in some uh, time of ancient history spoken to a real person named Arjuna. And if we take it as having been somehow or other recorded uh, by Vyasa, Vyasa Deva, uh, then it can have a strong impact because Krishna is speaking not only to Arjuna but he's speaking to all of us. Um, it's also powerful because he's addressing fundamental problems. he's He's addressing the the essential Uh, problem of our lives. Uh, We are, uh, we find ourselves uh, in a situation of, on the one side, um, wanting to be happy, wanting to enjoy life, uh, wanting to have permanent relationships with others, and uh, realizing that it's not possible to find permanent happiness because our very existence in these physical material bodies is not permanent. And we become uh, aware that um, we live in extreme constraints, uh, our freedom is uh, extremely limited. And it becomes increasingly limited as we get older. Uh, our powers of memory of, of mov- physical movement, everything becomes reduced so we experience old age and f- you know we become feeble. So is addressing all of that and saying, "Well, um, this is a problem, and here's how to fix it." <laughs> And uh, he's giving a quite practical process also. It's yoga. Uh, the, the word yoga can have the sense of practice. And um, it's some, sometimes um, contrasted with uh, the philosophical tradition called Sankhya, which is more analytical. But the Bhagavad Gita is very much com- combining not only Sankhya and Yoga, but also Vedanta. Uh, but it, it's it's in the end it's 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 a practical book. Uh, and getting tying that back to Krishna Seva when Krishna says, um, offer me a fruit offer me a flower, offer me some water, offer me uh, uh, just a leaf of a tree. If you do that and you do it with a spirit of, uh, of devotion, of submission, um, I'll accept it. I'll accept that offering. Um, so that's indicating that one can make an immediate relationship uh, with the Lord. Just by making a simple gesture, with uh, with a, a devotional attitude, so like that, and then Krishna expands on that. He says, "Whatever you do, um, you can uh, you can uh, engage that in such a way that it becomes, as we would say, spiritualized." Um, but when when Krishna says whatever, it's not exactly whatever. It's whatever you learn with some guidance from a teacher of Bhakti Yoga. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, people will think, okay, so I can take my uh, my drugs, my intoxication, and I can offer that to God. That'll be uh, that'll be good. Mm, no, not really.
0: Mm. <laughs> You mentioned that uh, if someone offers a leaf of water, that Krishna accepts. What that exactly means
1: that he accepts? Accept. Just like if I offer you a watermelon, <laughs> I hand it to you. Uh, you you accept. You say, "Oh, thank you." <laughs> so in. Um, as I said in the practice of uh, Krishna Seva, the murti or image in the temple, we make an offering, we place it on a nice uh, plate and we we bring before the deity and we remember from what we understand about how Krishna is all-powerful, that he can be fully present in that form that he can actually see, in this case, watermelon, which we might want to cut nicely, so we don't just leave the big melon there for him. We we prepare it in nice pieces. Maybe we take out the seeds, <laughs> and we remember that Krishna can not only see, but that because his uh, his because he is sentient. In fact, he is the source of our sentience. His senses are, um, all, are powerful in many ways, and one of them is that through his seeing, he can also taste. And we can sort of understand that um, with ourselves. If I give you watermelon, now I give you a watermelon slice, You see the watermelon, but you can also remember the taste because you've had watermelon before. But with Krishna, we understand his body, his form. Unlike ours, uh, each of the senses of his form can perform all the functions of all the other senses. And so when we offer Krishna says, he gives a condition for accepting. He says, I will accept it, your offering, when it is offered with devotion. So then the next question is, well, how do we measure that, whether I have devotion or not? (laughs) And what is that thing called devotion? Well, that's what the whole Bhagavad Gita is about, to understand, to get a sense of what it would mean to be to have a spirit of devotion to the Lord. But essentially, we also, we already know what that is when we feel some kind of um, eagerness to please another person. What is that feeling of having an eagerness to please some other person? Um, You know, we bring... uh, as small children, maybe we bring an apple to give to our teacher in the school. <laughs> we want to please the teacher. Um, so it's it's all um, it's not it's not something outside our experience, but it's something that we can learn to focus to to um, um, to be efficacious. Uh, in for our spiritual development Mm. so amazing we have
0: next book the last one next book
1: last book okay no there's one more here is there oh yeah okay last two
0: (laughs) okay the first one is Goura
1: this is the sma- Smaranam. Smaranam. Smarana. Smarana. Yeah. Same. We had Bhagavata Smaranam. And this is Gora smarana. Same thing. Smarana means remembering. And uh, Gora in this case is uh, referring to Sri Chaitanya. Mm-hmm. And uh, in our particular uh, strand of Vaishnava, culture of bhakti, Uh, we are especially keen to engage in uh, the um, practice of bhakti as guided by the person Gora, who is known as Sri Chaitanya, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sri Krishna Chaitanya, who uh, was, he's what we might want to call a pre-modern historical figure. He's from the um, uh, 16th century. Uh, And there is an extensive biography, a sacred biography about him and his life. I like to say he was the ideal reader of the Bhagavata, the Srimad Bhagavatam. Uh, He lived the Bhagavatam, and at the same time, we understand him to be an avatar, but not exactly avatar, but the form of Krishna himself as a devotee of Krishna. It gets a little complicated. So there are many stories. Um, We wouldn't say just stories, but history of his life and what we did in this book, again, like the Bhagavata Smarna, is encourage uh, readers of that history to write their own inspirations about uh, Gora. Gauranga, also he's called. Mm. So that's what that is, a collection of short writings. Short writings. Yeah.
0: Okay, and now we have the last one
1: here. Yeah, the last one here. The last one for today. For today. <laughs> and this is attending Krishna's
0: image, Chaitanya Vaishnava Murti Seva as devotional
1: truth. That was a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, that was a book that is that grew out of. Uh, or as a revised version of my doctoral dissertation. As I mentioned, this small book, Krishna Seva, that was my master's thesis. When I finished that, I went to um, Oxford University. I was um, able to um, be inducted in Oxford University. And... um, There, I was encouraged to continue the subject of uh, the worship of and the service to the image of Krishna in the temple. I had other ideas, but uh, my advisor at the time said, No, stay with your what you know, something, continue. So that's what I did. Uh, Yeah, so this was a more extensive um research and I would say in some ways deeper uh, than the the other work. And it has an ethnographic component, uh, especially in especially in chapter two, which is I focused on one particular temple in chapter two in vrindavan uh, where they've been doing this practice of Krishna, Seva for the last 400 and by now um, 60, 70, 80 years, a long time. More than four centuries, close to five centuries. They've been doing nonstop seven days a week um, 52 weeks a year. <laughs>
0: the Radharaman Temple.
1: The Radharaman Temple. So I went there, I studied, I, I listened to the Pujaris there. I got some of their literature. I got something translated that, um, that they had written and uh, interviewed them and got some ideas of how to develop a um, a comparison. This book is, um, it's a kind of comparison between this temple and one other temple, which is not in India. It's in England. It's outside of London. Uh, it's a place called Vedanta Manor, where they've been performing similar worship, not for f- almost 500 years, but for uh, let's see, from 1973, yeah, 50 years. Since half a century. Mm. <laughs> Again, uh, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, nonstop. And that's uh, starting at 4.30 in the morning, actually before. It's, they wake up the deity, so from 4 in the morning until... I don't know, nine something at night every day, nonstop. They're doing this uh, practice. So, this is a kind of comparison. I thought, well, uh, what sort of a, how can we understand this practice with a little bit of uh, mm, uh, more fine tuning, you know, like, if we can sharpen the lens, um, what? how can we get a deeper understanding of what's going on? So that's what I tried to do. So I include some history, some uh, explanation of the literature that uh, is kind of behind all of this, uh, some of the earlier history, some of the 19th century history, which leads... How did it happen that all of this even came to the West? Well, uh, that's the third chapter. How is the reasoning that made it possible to bring this, all of this into a, into a context of where um, Abrahamic traditions, especially Judaism and more especially Christianity, have prevailed for so many centuries, and suddenly you drop a, a a Vaishnava temple into the middle of that. What's going on? How is that working? Uh, that's explained in this book.
0: Mm. This is something I really must read.
1: Yes, maybe if you read this book, it'll give you ideas for your next book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that will be great ok now uh, I think we finish with books <laughs> okay. but I have a question from one person mm-hmm. um, just to find it how can we be sure that we are making the right decision although it look Externally wrong, or others
1: don't agree with that. That is a very broad sort of question and a bit abstract uh, without knowing what's the context of the question. But I would just say, generally, from the perspective of our tradition, we have we have a sort of three-prong approach mm-hmm. uh, to making decisions what to do, what not to do. Um, And that is, uh, first we have what we call Shastra, that is uh, the sacred literature, such as the Bhagavad Gita, the Srimad Bhagavata Purana, and there are others. So that's, we take as a kind of foundation, uh, because they give lots of um, guidance for for living uh, and then we have guru the guru is one who is very competent very knowledgeable of uh, the this uh, literature and so the guru can say well in this circumstance what would be important to consider can take into account what it says in this uh, literature what what I see as important uh, is X, Y, and Z. You should do like this and not do like that. And then the third uh, sort of cornerstone is what is called sadhu. Uh, guru is our personal teacher. Sadhu are, they may be associates of the guru. They are also practitioners of the tradition. They're also Knowledgeable of the foundational texts, the shastra, the literature, and um, as practitioners who are living sadhu generally means is living um, in a uh, in a in a serious way the practice and is um, living a rather austere way and so they they have very focused understanding. So sadhu, shastra, guru, vakya, the words of these three, we try to bring them all together into a clear understanding for ourselves. So there's actually there's these three, but there's a fourth and that's ourself. And so We get all guidance and then we have ourselves to take responsibility uh, for making a decision for our own lives. Uh, Not that I just listen to what everyone says and I just do what they say without thinking and don't take any responsibility. But rather I... Take into account all of this uh, guidance, and I take it seriously, and I follow it, but I follow it on my own understanding, my own reflection my own my own responsibility that's the basic uh, way we understand, and um, that works pretty well. <laughs> It's always challenging because new circumstances come, and we think, well, it doesn't say anything about this in the in the ancient literature, and it doesn't say anything about that okay, that's why we have uh contemporary uh practitioners to consult.
0: Thank you so much for all you share. My pleasure. Yeah. I always ask for final thoughts.
1: Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Yes. Uh, The final thought is we're all on a big, long spiritual journey. And um, it's an adventure. Mm -hmm. And um, something that my guru, uh, His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, Śrīla Prabhupāda always emphasized was uh, how particularly fortunate we are just being in these human bodies. So if we can take full advantage of, he would say, this human form of life, (laughs) Uh, this human form of life is rarely achieved. Uh, That's... uh, Something we don't appreciate, but if you think about it, you look around, there's so many different forms of life. And it's, it's a rare thing, uh, statistically, to have a human form. And it's the human form that is particularly equipped uh, to understand and practice and realize spiritual knowledge so that uh, we can actually uh, finish make a permanent solution uh, to material existence
0: well thank you so much thank you for your time and everyone who want to order the book we you can just write and we will uh, let you know how And uh, see you next time. Yes.
1: Next time we can show other books. Yes. Maybe (laughs) another 10, 20. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: Wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you.